I would be thrilled if you would let us know because uh, we there are some hymns there that I really want to give the congregation up in hand for the opportunity to get to know, and that's a good example of um, one of them. That's a marvelous hymn from the mid-1500s, and it's as timely today as it was when it was written. There are two or three um, uh, pickup items from the previous hour. Uh, the first is that uh, Raleigh Keller... Uh, made uh, a point which I think needs to be clarified a bit that uh, there are in fact uh, needs that people have and uh, I got to thinking uh, after Raleigh and I chatted there are what we call felt needs and sometimes those are correct and sometimes they're incorrect uh, when incorrect that's sappy isn't it uh, sometimes they're biblical and sometimes they're unbiblical that's better uh, but uh, the point that I think is crucial, which uh, Raleigh made, is that obviously we have to have some awareness of people's needs. And I believe that you get that uh, in part by talking to them, but what you get by, if you will, questionnaires or just discussions must always be measured against Scripture. I believe it is possible for people to believe that they have a true need, a felt need that in fact is anything but a proper need. And Raleigh, I couldn't find you afterwards, but I realize we need to clarify that. I think otherwise we can get ourselves uh, in a trap there. And then um, Larry McHard came up with a point that I think is so important, I wanted to touch on it, having to do with the scientific method. And that is that when you do uh, reach a certain level of certainty so that you can draw a conclusion, uh, what he pointed out, which is quite correct, is that all you've done is gotten to a higher level of probability certainty, if you will, or awareness. And the fact is that I think it's well to remember you can show me almost no scientific conclusion that's gone unchanged for much more than 50 years. There's hardly anything in the history of science that has not uh, undergone uh, fairly regular change. The third thing I'd like to say by that, with respect to that, is that you often hear people talk about the theory of evolution. You ought to realize it's never made it to a theory level. At best, it's a bad hypothesis. But we do the kingdom no service, and we certainly do uh, unbelievers no service when we carelessly refer to it as a theory. Uh, it's not. And then the last thing, which my wife reminded me, as I tend to slither into parenthetical reflections and meanderings is that I failed to mention that the chaplain corps insignia that the rabbinette held up in her druidic worship ceremony was made out of monkey pod wood. That's the connection. Well, Yes, thank, thank you. Yes, and an, uh, another point that we did discuss, and I, I appreciate that, Raleigh, is that I was talking especially and particularly about the wickedness of that idea with respect to worship. And I didn't use the word, but I think most of you have heard it, the regulative principle, and it's one we give, and I think properly, uh, more than just lip service to. Although I think, again, if we're going to be honest with one another, we don't always have uh, impeccable agreement on what indeed are all of the application elements of the regulative principle. 
and we have even within the OPC uh, some honest differences of opinion exactly of what elements are properly uh, within the worship service. And so uh, when Raleigh came up, uh, he did mention, in fact, and I failed to, uh, to reflect that, that when you're uh, addressing the issue of evangelism and how you uh, communicate with people uh, concerning uh, God's claim on their lives and their need of Jesus Christ, that's not the same thing as conducting a formal worship service. And that's an important distinction. And so we shouldn't obviously be clods uh, in terms of our understanding of others. Uh, as one who's had a long track record of being a clod, I appreciate, the, appreciate that uh, thought. Thank you, Raleigh. Uh, now, I would like to go to some insight in Scripture which ties the issue of worship together with epistemology. And the first text I would like to go to is in Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. And I believe that there is a profound epistemological statement here that either is going to offend you or going to encourage you. Verses 8 and 9. In the context of a call to repentance... He says, verse 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I would ask you today if you would be willing to agree that that's a rather powerful comparison. How high are the heavens above the earth? And God says, that's how much higher my thoughts are than yours. And then if you look at the context, which begins... Uh, the, the immediate context as opposed to the greater context, which begins in verse 6. Having said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And then look at that next thought that there. He says, And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Now, isn't that interesting? You see, that is a call to repent of evil thinking. And God here, I submit, is very honestly saying the level, the quality, the righteousness, the integrity, every aspect of my thinking is so much higher than yours as the heavens is above the earth. Implication, obviously you can't think my thoughts unaided. You can't think my thoughts by yourself. That's a clear implication of that text. And then over in chapter 65 of Isaiah, another good clue on this uh, subject as to how God sees the difference between our thinking and His. Isaiah 65, verse 2. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. Now, if you like tying things together carefully in an exegetical fashion, that is a very helpful companion text for the text in Proverbs that says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And we're going to see some other things that Jesus says in just a moment about how we think. But the way we think inevitably affects how we behave and how we speak. And God is a God who cares about 
our thought life. We don't talk this way a lot. We say we're made in the image of God, but the fact is God is a mind. God is the ultimate intellectually competent being. God is the ultimate thinker. God is the ultimate truth thinker. And God is the ultimate truth speaker. And so if I'm going to be in his image, and if you're going to be in his image in the sense of not just uh, polluting that, that is consciously, uh, that we want to reflect the image of God uh, even in our fallen state because we're, we're redeemed, we need to appreciate the fact that we have a responsibility to bring our thought life into conformity to God's thought life. And so we're going to look at some places in the New Testament where we see such things as, as we're to have the mind of Christ. And I like the summary that Sir Isaac Newton uh, gave us, which I believe is one of the most lustrous things he said. You realize that about nine-tenths of what he wrote was in theology. Uh, classical physics was his hobby. And by the way, a little commercial, all ministers should have a hobby. Anybody that concentrates entirely on ministry, I believe, eventually gets saturated and stale. End of commercial. <laughs> now, if you will turn with me over to Luke, we see some more reflections of this, this uh, business of how we think. Chapter 24. Question. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Joe. That's more of that slippage stuff. See, we have to help each other. Yes, what he said was, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. God bless him. Somebody caught that slippage. Uh, he said the essence of Christianity, the essence of Christianity is learning to think God's thoughts after him. I believe that's one of the most succinct summations of the nexus of truth that characterizes uh, Christianity has probably ever been said. I believe it's one of the half a dozen greatest extra-biblical statements ever made. Personal belief. You don't have to agree with me. Luke 24. You know the context. Christ has risen. He's on the road to Emmaus. And he comes alongside of these two uh, disciples that are doing some hand-wringing and some grieving. And he asks them a leading question when they say all the things that have happened, don't you know about them? And he says, what things? What things? Isn't that wonderful? What things? Boy, door goes open, see, to find out, of course he knew already, but to, to make it, of course, for us as well, a great insight. And so they said to him, verse 19, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. And then look at verse 21. But. Oh, that little word, but. You know, the first one, all the proper things. You know, he was crucified, so on. But we were hoping. Now, you didn't get that word before. We were hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel. There's the kicker. There's the motivation. There's the gloom. Now, when Jesus Christ began his public ministry, he said, well, when, he, when they said, well, Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom? He says, the king is within you. See? The king is within you. 
And if you look at the parables and most of the other stuff that Jesus taught, stuff, that's a terrible word, most of the truths and ideas that Jesus taught was about the kingdom. That was a major concern that he, that he had. And he would say to them, my kingdom is not of this world, or the kingdom is within you. And he'd say things like that, and then they'd look and they'd say, yeah, but when are you going to restore Israel? See? And that's one of the reasons I have a hypothesis, it's only a hypothesis, that it takes us, but for the, exception, but, uh, for the intervention of God's supernatural grace, it takes us approximately three years to truly assimilate believe, understand, and then apply a new idea. You know, when we first hear the idea, we tend to reject it, and then we finally realize it's not going to destroy us, it takes us a while to get comfortable with it, and then we eventually get to the place we believe we thought of it in the first place. <laughs> and then, after that, then we start to do something with it. So here, Jesus is put up for three years with this idea, they just won't let go of it. You know, aren't you, we, we thought he was going to restore Israel. See, they can't let go of that. And Jesus says, Oh, you wonderful, persevering believers. At last I found some people who hang in there and don't give up. Is that what he said? No. If you're going to persevere, you better persevere the right way. Look what he calls them. The most serious of all condemnations that are in Scripture. Verse 25, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter in his glory? He won't even address the restoration of Israel. He doesn't even want to talk about that with them. He's unwilling to. And then, does he reveal himself or does he exegete the word? He exegetes the word, doesn't he? And their hearts burn within, them, within him. But he is using the same marvelous door of opportunity that is open to us to reflect on the truths of Scripture as over against what we emotionally spaz into, uh, usually without a whole lot of care. And that's how he dealt with their bad thinking. That's how he dealt with it. Let's go over to Genesis 8. Verse 9 for a moment. And I'm going to ask you a question here that's a pretty crucial question. You don't have to answer it to me. But have you ever looked at a baby and said, Oh, they're so innocent. Have you ever said that? Now, if you say they're innocent looking, okay, fine. We'll make that concession. You know, in the name of parent love or grandparent love, we can live with those kind of slithers, that's not perilous. But if you said they are innocent, are you speaking the truth? No, you're not. No. Even if they haven't committed any sins you can identify yet, and just because you can't identify them doesn't mean they haven't committed them. But the fact is that we have an evil nature. We're born with that. And I ask you, of course, do you believe that? And I would hope everyone here says yes. Now look at what God's indictment is in Genesis 8. This is, of course, after the flood. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. This is verse 21 now. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, if you have an earlier translation, 
King James, that should say the imagination of man's heart is only evil from his youth continually. So you can get some uh, discussion going as to precisely uh, the sense of the Hebrew word there. And if you have a New American Standard, you may have a marginal note that says inclination. But the fact is that whether you're talking about imagination or the larger realm of man's thinking, the fact is it's affected by evil. And we have to believe that. And I believe that we have little appreciation for how serious this is uh, in our culture, the failure to understand this. Um, I suspect some of you uh, have read some of Thomas Aquinas, and I think you know he was considered to be the greatest intellect the Catholic Church produced after uh, Aquinas. Wait a minute, let's try that again. After Augustine, that was another slippage. Um, that uh, Aquinas uh, was a brilliant thinker in many ways, but I submit he introduced a hole in the dike, like the story of the little boy in Holland who put his finger in the dike. You remember that one? Uh, that's a favorite story. Well, uh, why did he put his finger in the dark dike? Because he knew if the water kept running, it would start to wash the dike out, and then there would be a great catastrophe. And I believe that Thomas Aquinas put a hole in the dike of Western epistemology when he argued the position that the intellect of man could think truth unaided by grace. Now, you see, that may sound so innocent, so innocent. But he laid the groundwork for the rejection of the necessity of the knowledge of God in the Enlightenment, as well as some other terrible things, such as Immanuel Kant deciding that uh, what we think about things religious is in the noumenal realm, which is a fancy name for the imaginary realm. And then you've got the real world, the phenomenal world, and he essentially just separated, uh, by his lights, Christianity from the real world. If you want to have a little a garden of imagination up here where you sort of play around with religious ideas, that's fine. But it's no big deal because it isn't real. That rhymes, doesn't it? It's no big deal because it isn't real. Um, anyway, the, the fact is that uh, uh, you and I then are the inheritors of a society that says uh, you don't need the word of God to think correctly. You, don't need, you and I don't need God's word to draw correct conclusions and make right decisions or to know what's right. And I suspect you've all seen uh, this sort of stuff uh, in the public media and in the entertainment system and so on. Uh, I, to me, the paradigm of this sappy type of stuff is uh, the, uh, the standard, uh, I guess it's not a sitcom, it's a sit-trad uh, <laughs> for situation tragedy. And, um, you know, son or daughter come home from college, and of course they've picked up some new corruption, and if it's a son, it's usually become homosexual. And, and so then the, the, the uh, uh, drama plays out as the parents face this fact, and then, of course, they're given insight by uh, sensitive, sensitive counselors, something like this. And then in the end, uh, they, uh, they accept, you see, uh, uh, they accept this, this uh, abomination, and it's always accepted with something like this. Well, you know, if it feels right to you, uh, we'll support you. See? If it feels right. See? And that's, that's an expression, I believe, of the outworking of this terrible and tragic omission 
uh, within the Western world that the churches have been all too willing to embrace. So now over to uh, Proverbs, to a couple of texts that are important. First of all, chapter 3, and verse 5, again an epistemological statement that is tied intimately to God himself and a right relationship with God. If you have been a reader of Scripture, I'm sure you've come along and read this wonderful verse uh, 5 of chapter 3 of Proverbs, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. But you notice that there's a second half, it's the antithetical part. And do not lean on your own understanding. Now that's an imperative. That's a commandment. And I propose an immutable certainty that you and I cannot trust God in exactly the degree to which we lean on our own understanding or trust ourselves. So that's like two sides of a coin in a sense. Or a better example, uh, a, a, a fractional equation. That the more you trust and lean on your own understanding will be the exact degree to which you less and less trust the Lord, but vice versa. The more you distrust your own understanding will be the more, uh, or the degree to which by God's grace you can then willingly, consciously, conspicuously trust God. And then especially uh, in our light, the thoughts of God, the ideas of God. And then he says again a warning in verse 7, the first half, don't be wise in your own eyes. Now, if I'm really going to apply that, it's not just a nice platitude. Somewhere I've got to be willing to say, I'm not wise. I'm not wise. I'm not all that smart. And if you really want to get into ironies upon ironies and mixed metaphors, isn't this ironic that in our country, I believe we have two parallel traditions, one of incredible intellectual arrogance that's the flip side of the anti-intellectualism that we've uh, uh, put into our churches as a, a noble piety. And they're both evil. And so uh, you and I then, I believe, are called to understand that it's the way of disaster to trust ourselves. Now let's see how Solomon plays that out a little bit. Verse 12 of chapter 14 and you'll find the uh, same text uh, in uh, uh, Proverbs uh, 16. My memory serves me right, but one will do here. Or Proverbs 12, 15, I think it is. In Proverbs 14, verse 12, Solomon says, There's a way which seems right to a man. Or if you will, there's a way right to a man, if you really want to get super literal. But its end is the way of death. In other words, I can be convinced it's dead right and it's dead wrong, if you'll allow that kind of intended pun there, that I have the capacity to deceive myself to where I fervently believe that what is so wrong it can ultimately cause my, my death and be utterly convinced it's right. I have that capacity for self-deception and I suspect you do too. No, that was sappy. I know you do too, because the scripture says so. We all have it. Over to Jeremiah, if you will, please. Jeremiah 17.
Jeremiah 17 and verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind or in man. Now, if I trust in man, how do I do it? Well, when you think about the whole issue of trust, the dynamic of trusting means that you elect to put your confidence in another person based on essentially two things, what they say and what they do. That you make a commitment to be vulnerable to their behavior after you've made a decision that they're trustable or trustworthy, true or false. And the fact is that our Bible tells us that the person who trusts in man is cursed. Now that is unwimpy language. That's powerful. And then he goes on in a verse I trust is familiar to all of you or most of you. Verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately wicked. And if your Bible translates that sick, that's a sappy translation. Sick is very honorable. You know, if I get sick, it's not my fault. If I get the measles or I get whooping cough or diphtheria or the mumps, that is not morally wrong to catch a bad virus or a bad bug, a bad bacteria. It's not somehow a form of moral dereliction unless I chose to disobey known principles of uh, care around those ill with contagious diseases. But when it's when the Bible tells us that our volitional being is desperately wicked to the point that the rhetorical question at the end of verse 9 suggests nobody can really understand the depth of that wickedness, somewhere that ought to convince me that I'm a fool, capital F, fool, if I elect to trust my own understanding. That God is calling me to distrust by grace my own inclinations, imaginations, suppositions, and all the rest of it. This really is a call to intellectual and epistemological emancipation from the bondage of self. It really is. And then over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you will, for a moment. First Corinthians two. Verse fourteen. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Would you be willing to concede? that that is a very clear declaration of inability to grasp with the mind the truths of God apart from the work of the Spirit and the grace in Christ. This is simply saying that given man's nature, his natural nature, if you will, that the things of God the things that the Spirit of God inspired the writers of Scripture to write are foolishness to the unsaved natural person. In other words, they make no sense. And then over in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, 
He says, let no man deceive himself. This is verse 18. I always forget the verse, don't I? Or the chapter. That's more slippage. Uh, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. The wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. And I believe that that is a profound call to epistemological and perceptual and cognitive righteousness. That everything must start with Christ and his word and it must end there. And to the extent that it deviates from the thoughts of God is the extent to which it's evil and unrighteousness and ultimately disastrous for the church. And I would say to you then, in truth, do we, in fact, have a responsibility to know the thoughts of God? Do you believe that as you sit here today? Or to simply be, let the thoughts of God be uh, circumstantial, uh, fortunate springboards into the swimming pool of fulfillment? That when you trip over a text that's meaningful, you know, you highlight it and then go on to what makes you feel good. You've got to decide which you're going to do. Now, I want to add to the problem, in a sense, and yet at the same time encourage you, because I believe what we add here is really hope, and that is, I believe that, oh, irony of ironies, as we've become more and more spiritually inept and theologically midgetly, that's an invented word, um, that one of the great contributing problems is the issue of pride. And isn't it ironic that as our country becomes more consumed with timidity, more consumed with problems of our own making, teetering on the brink of fiscal disaster, uh, embracing now a legitimization of homosexuality and pornography that our uh, even uh, grandparents would not have ever believed if we had told them would come, and a host of other things, that there's been a proportional and commensurate rise in the uh, subject of pride. Some of you have heard me speak on this before. I plead with you then to bear with me. I'll try to be brief. But let me just say that in the Church of Jesus Christ, I believe, and I'm going to say a hard one here, I believe in the Reformed churches that we have more than many tolerated intellectual pride and at times let intellectual pride be uncorrected and unrepented of. And I believe furthermore that we have failed to appreciate this great truth that with every blessing there's a potential for the misuse of that blessing that's proportionate to the blessing. Just as with every problem there's a potential for seeing the righteousness of God manifested in the solution of that problem. And I believe that we who are the inheritors of the Reformed faith have, in fact, often reveled 
in our knowledge and have not been willing to remember what Christ said, that to whom much is given, much is required, and that those who have much of them shall the more be expected. And so he who knows his Lord's will and does it not, from that Luke parable of the corrupt servant, he who knows his Lord's will and does it not shall be beaten with many lashes. Well, he who did not know the Lord's will and did it not shall be beaten with few. This is, again, a little parenthetical thought. That, incidentally, is a dynamic reason why covenant children will have so much more to face in the day of judgment if they turn their back on the faith. Because they've been given more in the Reformed churches than most other ten churches put together. And when you realize the kind of fluff that passes for content in most sermons today, uh, I would say to you young people, you need to get down on your underworked knee bones and thank God for what you're getting and pray for the grace never, 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 never to take it lightly. And never, never, never to be casual about it. So what is this business of pride then? Well, I submit that pride means where you take to yourself credit for or assume to yourself or accrue to yourself a presumed ability that in truth you do not possess or you take credit for what you did not accomplish. And so if, for instance, I have the capacity to think something, who gave me that capacity? If I believe that what the scripture says, that in Christ we uh, consist, all things consist, that in God we live and move and have our being, as Paul said to the Athenians, if I really believe Jesus' statement in John 15, when he said in verse 5, without me you can do nothing, if I really believe that, I can never take credit for any right thought he enables me to think. I owe it to him to give him the glory for that. And the fact that you and I today are here in this room, not members of a hideously liberal church, bastardizing the truth and apostatizing from the faith is because God's been gracious, not because we're so wonderful intellectually or any other way. And I believe, personally, I believe we've become strangers to understanding what real humility is. And Jesus Christ, what for me is something that just more and more strikes me as so, so crucial, on three separate occasions pointed out that he who exalts himself shall be abased, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And I believe that this whole subject of how do you humble yourself is a fascinating issue in its own right, but I do not believe God ever tells us to do something for which there's insufficient grace or opportunity. And I believe God gives to his people in his grace, his redemptive grace, a capacity to first of all understand and then secondly to carry out this strange business of humbling ourselves. And in the occasions in which it occurs, and I'm pawing here in my frantic mouse making its nest fashion, uh, for one of them, I just found it, uh, Luke 14, 
he uses the example of the wedding feast, and you're, you're invited and you go in, and he warns uh, us not to go to the place of honor at the right hand of the host, but rather to take uh, the uh, last place, and this is verse 10, so that the one who has invited you when he comes may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. And if you look at that, uh, he then says, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. And sometimes that's translated abased or brought low, and I think that helps with the sense of it. And he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And beloved, I am very much persuaded that's almost a lost grace in our churches. That's almost a lost grace of humbling ourselves. I remember some years back when I was in the uh, service, uh, to speak, I went to speak for the first of a number of times at a conference ground that is owned by the Officers Christian Fellowship in central Pennsylvania, south central Pennsylvania. And uh, some of those people there uh, really are very dear to me. And I remember Ray Johnson, who uh, now lives out here in California, was the manager there. And they do much the same as most Christian campgrounds. They help cut costs. You know, you bust your own tables and that sort of jazz. We do it here. And uh, anyway, he told me that whenever they have a conference of pastors, and those of you that have that Rev stuff in front of your name, uh, listen up. He told me that the pastors were the worst, the worst, at not volunteering to clean the tables or sweep the floor or wash the dirty dishes or scrub the pots and pans. And he said that they all mill around and try to get out of it. And he said it's really amazing when there's nobody but pastors there. <laughs> to watch them trying to get out of those simple servant duties. He says, it's unbelievable. It's a Chinese turtle. They trip over themselves fleeing out of the dining room. What a damning indictment of what ought to be a servant's heart. And to whom much is given, much is suspect or expected. And I believe that we who have been ordained, and I do not believe Scripture requires us to be called reverend. That's another parenthetical thought. I think that's part of this, this sort of endemic, incremental creeping into the odious bedroom of pride that's characterized the church for 200 plus years. I don't think we should call ourselves reverend. God is properly the one we should call reverend. End of that commercial. But I believe that Christ clearly teaches that we who have been ordained as elders and teachers and deacons are to be the servants of the flock. And Jesus said, I did not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. And in the context of that call, he reminded us that the servant is not greater than the master and that we're called to serve. And I submit you can't serve without humility in anything other than the most crass, external, and mechanical fashion. And so, beloved, uh, you and I really need to be warned to guard our heart as we wrestle with these truths, and especially, especially, as we're going to be looking at a number of different aspects about thinking the truths of God, of being theologically right, that we do so, 
please God with humble hearts, with hearts that quiver before God with the realization that we have the potential to steam off in arrogance, thinking ourselves to be wise when we're fools. Let me take you over to Isaiah for just a minute, chapter 2, and then verse 5. And look at God's view of this problem. And as you're turning there, I would hope it's sufficient to say that the context of Isaiah certainly is a context of a message of repentance coming to a people that were uh, in imminent danger of being judged for their wickedness, their corporate as well as personal wickedness. Look what Isaiah says in chapter 2. Verse 11, the proud look of man will be abased, and the loftiness of man will be humbled. And that's, of course, in the day of reckoning. Verse 12, for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. Now, when Jesus Christ said that, remarkable statement, everyone who exalts himself will be abased. He was drawing on substantive theology that had been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then over in chapter 5, in verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Now, Barbara and I rode down with the Wienendals from Hanford. We had a little caravan of two campers, John and Nell and one. And, uh, they carried Sharon and Rachel, and Barbara and I rode with Joe and Marie. And we were talking about this, and I remember Joe telling me uh, something that uh, I think is quite an insight, that when we are um, teenagers, we tend to think we know it all. But when you get to be about 60 plus, then you wonder if you know anything. Well, that's not all bad. <laughs> now, please take that with a grain of salt. But uh, there's a sense to which I believe if we really are maturing in the Lord, there's a sense in which the wiser we become, the more we become aware of the extremely small amount of knowledge and wisdom we really possess. By the way, more slippage. Alicia Canton came to me and asked me to, redef- to define again reactive thinking. My apologies. for. I looked right at it. I'll blame my bifocals, not me. No, I will blame me. That's not honest to blame my bifocals. All right. Uh, this is a parenthetical return for just a moment. I submit reactive thinking is when you make a decision or draw a conclusion only on the basis of making the elements of that decision or conclusion, if you will, an equal and opposite reflection of a particular situation or circumstance that you yourself have figured out on your own. I'll put it another way. Suppose you see... (laughs) I could tell something from her visage in that one. That was a kind of... That was very nice, but I didn't get a smile. Is that right, Alicia? Yeah. Okay, let's try again. Uh, if 
if I say something, I mean, if I see a situation I don't like, and I make a decision to avoid that kind of a decision or situation, and then I structure my attempt to get away from that, that bad situation by looking at what I think are the bad elements of the situation I don't like and then drawing conclusions on how to avoid that bad situation based on the opposite of what I saw. That's reactive thinking. You see, if I see a bad situation, I need to look at what Scripture says about how to deal with that bad situation. That's non-reactive thinking. It's not wrong to look at a situation and to assess its elements, but it's very wrong to limit my corrective response to that situation purely on the basis of figuring out what the opposite is of what I think the key elements of that situation are. Alicia, did that second time around help, or do you want me to run it a third time? I'll, yes, yes, sure, I'll use an example. Um, suppose I see an instance where a child is being beaten by an enraged parent. Now, I submit we see more child beating because there's fewer and fewer parents that discipline their children lovingly, so the children become insufferable brats, and then these parents who have the emotional maturity of fleas and who are themselves undisciplined, can't tolerate the lousy behavior that they've taught their children to do, and so when their children push them over a th threshold, then there's an explosion of anger, and they beat the children. And I submit that's how the dynamic uh, in office is the case. So here's the observer. Let's take Alicia. She observes this. Then if Alicia says, well, I'm never going to lay a hand on my child because I've seen this terrible example of beating, that's drawing a bad conclusion from the involves one other external behavior, and that's making strange noises with our mouth, which we sometimes call speaking and sometimes call singing. True or false? So the mouth, presumably tied to the brain, and we like to think it is tied to the brain, uh, is the primary instrumentality for worship, isn't it? Words and ideas encapsulated in words are what you... I can't say, I wouldn't be right to say play around with it, but, but is the stuff and substance of right worship, isn't it? I mean, when you come in the presence of God, for instance, if the minister's got his act together, he should have some kind of clue that he gives to the congregation that you're now stepping into a very distinct and narrow mode of behavior. And we call that a call to worship. And I personally appreciate it when I see a minister uh, who makes announcements before the call to worship because it says he has some sense of the fact that when that time is consecrated for that purpose until the benediction which ends that time of corporate worship nothing else should be there to contaminate the picture however well-intentioned or nice or wonderful or anything else. And the fact is that when we worship we either hear somebody say something or we say something or we hear somebody sing, or we sing, and hopefully our brain's not neutral. And other than the sit up, sit down, and smack the child thing, <laughs> that constitutes most of how you function in worship, isn't it? Now, I admit that's a sort of non-stereotypical way of describing it, describing it, but it's analytically quite correct. And 
I, I, this really is not this is really not a commercial for careful speech. It's much more than a commercial. It's an exhortation. But I believe that as we come into worship, we come in with a lot of baggage that's very pernicious. And I believe one of the most pernicious baggage elements we bring is is the great American love of cliches. Oh, we love those little verbal prostitutes, don't we? And I think platitudes and cliches are incredibly insidious because they give the illusion of intelligent thought. They give the illusion of godly thought. Well, in fact, usually precluding same. I believe that cliches are one of the best turnoffs for biblical thinking that Christians have ever been able to serve up in the pantheon of Esau pottage messes for congregations. Uh, for instance, smile. God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for you. Well, I am persuaded that every single reprobate that has ever lived when they finally arrive in hell would disagree with that statement. <laughs> but I don't think it's just that neutral or pseudo-neutral. I submit that every reprobate in hell who was seduced to be comfortable with a specious assurance on the basis of that promiscuous declaration that you see uh, in all sorts of places uh, is going to have every reason to despise those who contributed to his damnation, notwithstanding the fact that it's his own fault. Because if I say to people this wonderful syrupy half-truth, God has a wonderful plan for you, and I stop there. For the unregenerate, that's an incredible seduction to not take the call to repentance for sin seriously. Now, does Jesus Christ himself have a concern how we speak and what we say? I propose he does. And it's a very, very, uh, I think, clear one, one we need to understand. Let's turn to Matthew 15, first of all. And I would like you to see how Jesus Christ ties worship and language and where language comes from into a mix uh, that's just inseparable. He ties these together tightly. Verse 1 of chapter 15, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He's not to honor his father or his mother. And thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, and now he quotes from Isaiah, verses 8 and 9, But this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. 
And then he says, hear and understand. Verse 11, not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Well, Peter doesn't understand it. He usually didn't. Verse 15, he says, explain the parable to us. And Jesus says, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes in the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, slander. These are the things which defile the man. And then over in Matthew 12, verse 34, You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, by your words you shall be condemned. Now I beg you, I'll be glad to talk to you after, if you want to try to finesse this with what about my sins that are forgiven, and is every word remember, I don't want to get into that right now, so that you lose the point that Christ is saying he cares, beloved, he cares about what we say. He cares about what comes out of our mouth. And then he says something else. And by the way, I appreciated what Mark had to say last night. It was right on target. I thought that was a good start uh, for some of the stuff uh, we're addressing today. And I want to do a very, very simple diagram on the board here, which I believe has infinitely significant uh, implications for good or for evil for the church. I think most people would agree that out of our thoughts comes what we say. Would you agree with that? It's very hard to say something of any consequence without at least a millisecond or two thought before it. But what I submit that we do not appreciate is the other half of this, that what we say influences what we think. And those two texts I read you, Jesus says, it's not what you take into your body that corrupts you, it's what comes out. Well, what comes out? There's only about four things, spit, vomit, bad breath, and words. Well, not always bad breath. Uh, Five things. When you're eating and you talk with your mouth full, food, and that's not them. Okay, five things. And the one, obviously, that's in view here is speech. Now, if you think for a minute, is it true that when we are in tight spots, it's fairly common to talk to yourself? There's all sorts of instances in wartime when people have been in terrible situations. They just carry on a conversation with yourself. Self, now you steer clear of that flag. Are you ready to get out if we're hit and to get out before the plane hits and all that sort of stuff? And we do it in times of great, great stress. We do talk to ourselves. And I submit we do something else. We say things over and over until we believe them, including platitudes and cliches. And I've said this hundreds of times, and you've probably heard me say it a lot of you, but I believe the communists understand this principle better than we do because they believe in propaganda. 
And by the way, there's still a lot of communists around, even if they've renamed themselves. Don't forget that. And the fact is, they understand that you can even take a lie, and if you get people to say it often enough, they'll believe it. And so if I say often enough that the gospel involves getting people to ask Jesus into their heart, eventually I'll get the entire church to believe it. And I suspect some of us in this room, if we're honest, you know we did, but the fact is that probably some of us have actually said that. Have you invited Jesus into your heart? Oh, what tragic diminution of the sovereign prerogatives of a sovereign God who ought to be beseeched for mercy that he will indeed receive us in mercy. And that's only one of hundreds of examples I could give. But beloved, today I would hope that as we continue in this uh, series and we're look, going to look at some of these other things that we understand that what we say matters terribly and what we say in worship matters most of all because we're in an exceptionally sacred and unique situation which in one sense in corporate worship it's at that point that we come closer in a sense to kissing uh, the church in heaven than at any other point is when we're in corporate worship, then we're worshiping, if it's right, if it's in spirit and truth, we're worshiping in unity with the church in heaven. And that worship in heaven, if you read scripture, in great measure consists of impeccably righteous declarations and acknowledgments about the character and worth and glory and righteousness of God. How much time do I have? I'm over. Did you signal me? I didn't even see it. I repent. Let's stop. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please grant us a real heart for the mind of Christ. Please grant us, O oh God, a love of your truth. Please give us Father in heaven, a love of your word and your words. Please give us, O oh God, a humility before you as we seek to know your thoughts, to love them, and to speak them. And we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your glorious name, amen. Hmm?